Hey, welcome back to the show. Well, a new poll from the Angus Reid Institute has found that more than a half of Canadians think Justin Trudeau should step down as a leader of the Liberal Party before the next federal election. And even among Liberal voters, almost half of respondents said he should turn the party leadership over to a new fresh face, although there was no clear consensus on whom uh, that should be. The uh, poll was conducted online this month among just over 1,800 Canadian adults, uh, which found 57% thought Mr. Trudeau should step down before the next election, which is scheduled for 2025. Well, joining me now to talk a little bit about federal leadership is Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. Good afternoon, Keith. Hey, Jess. Hi. So what do, what do you take away from this poll? Oh, yeah, more bad news. Well, a couple of things. More bad news for Justin Trudeau. I mean, the things just keep, the hole he's in just keeps getting deeper and deeper. And that's that you mentioned. One of the key findings, I think, is now liberal voters themselves, almost half, 41%, say it's time for him to go. So he's got a problem from within. Um, and But there's no heir apparent. Christopher Freeland scores best on name recognition, slightly better on who would make a better leader when compared to. Uh, other candidates whose names were forward, Mark Carney, the former Bank of Canada governor, Melanie Jolie, um, Anita Anand, France-Philippe uh, Champagne, all from cabinet were names, but none of them scored particularly well. So there's no heir apparent. There's no one waiting in the wings who's the obvious savior of the Liberals. But they've got a problem with uh, the Trudeau brand. It's obviously in serious trouble. Even here in B.C., where the Conservatives had a long time trying to make a mark, they've got a significant lead now in the popular vote in B.C., and, and Trudeau's numbers are down considerably. The one, I wouldn't even call it a positive, but it's just one glimmer for Mr. Trudeau, is that no one, no political leader on the national stage is viewed particularly with a lot of respect by voters. I mean, it does seem to be this this dearth of leadership on the national stage. Pierre Poliev, and on the question of who, be, who is the best prime, would make the best prime minister, Pierre Poliev, the Conservatives, in first place, but just 30%, um, 16% for Trudeau, 15% for Jagmeet Singh. I mean, there's very low numbers for the pr- people who are vying to be prime minister. So there's no real um, affection for any uh, national leader. Uh, the Conservatives have an 11-point lead in the opinion, in the uh, amongst decided voters. There's no question if an election were held today, you'd have to favor the Conservatives winning probably a majority. I don't think that's clear, considering the Liberals still have a lead in Quebec and in Atlantic Canada, which can be a buffer to a majority being formed by someone else. But nevertheless, uh, it would seem it's an election right now for the Conservatives to lose. But Polio's own numbers, his his disapproval rating continues to be very high, still hovering around 50%. So no political, what strikes me again, no political leader is really viewed with a lot of respect on the federal level. And you start putting the federal leaders on every party Mm -hmm. up against provincial um, premiers, for example. And whether you agree with them or not, I would say David Eby in B.C., Danielle Smith in Alberta, Scott Moe in Saskatchewan, our new premier in in Manitoba, Francois Legault in Quebec, and Doug Doug Ford, even Doug Ford's problems with the Greenbelt in Ontario notwithstanding, all those premiers seem to be held with higher approval ratings for the most part than anyone on the federal federal stage. And that's that's, uh, troubling, but also puzzling. Yeah, it's interesting in that generally it's the other way around. You always think that, look, um, the, the grown-ups are at the federal level and whoever is prime minister um, has a certain amount of gravitas compared to sometimes the odd provincial leader that uh, creates more news, not good news. But you're right in this case. It seems like you are grown-ups on the provincial side and um, most people are not happy with what they see federally. And I think you're a very good point. Mr. Polyev uh, appears to be headed 
towards a majority at this point, and things, of course, can change. Uh, but with only a 30 percent uh, in regards to who would make the best prime minister, that's that, that, those numbers aren't huge at all. And he's been on this show, I think, five or six times now. He's just on last week. And he's a, an effective communicator, but I think what I find with him is that, yes, he knows his his lines, he delivers them well, but it's the case of where I feel you don't see a lot of humanity coming from him, not a lot of empathy, and I don't no. think he's a bad human being or, or anything. I just think he has a has difficulty sort of in an era where I once I told a political leader, that we're in an era where EQ matters just as much as IQ, and I yeah. think that's part of the challenge. It's, it's just connecting with that voter. Well, you know, the, the, this poll and other polls are, are setting the, the table here for something, and that is the Liberals have a huge leadership problem with the current leader. If he walks away, though, because the Conservative vote doesn't seem to be entrenched or that universal, and it's not wrapped around a popular leader, that suggests it's vulnerable, and that the Liberals conceivably could bring some of that vote back. You know, they've lost 10% of their voters to the Conservatives since the last election, uh, even more than that to the NDP. If they can bring those voters back just from the, to the parties they've lost votes to, that would put them in a, a, a driver's seat to win an election again. Now, I'm not sure they can do that with Krisha Freeland or Mark Carney or anyone else, but... Perhaps the argument made that anyone else can do a, a better has a better chance of doing that of, of taking back that disaffected liberal vote, who's gone elsewhere under the dying, what could be the dying embers of the Trudeau leadership. Now, Trudeau's notoriously stubborn. He's a good campaigner. We have yet to see the liberal counterattack offensive. What's going to come on the on the airwaves with a huge attack ad against Pierre Polyev at some point in the next year or so. Um, perhaps that will drive the conservative numbers down. Maybe the argument is that they've peaked too early. That argument, we've seen that before in political circles. But um, no, this poll, by and large, very troubling for the liberals, very uh, pleasing for the conservatives with an asterisk that they're vulnerable. They're not there yet with a cemented lead over the the liberals. They are vulnerable if the liberals can change the channel. Yeah, and, and you know, partially, a lot of this may be out of Mr. Trudeau's hands. We yesterday had Michael Levy on. We were talking about inflation and numbers nationally are about 3, 3.8% here in British Columbia. They're down to 3.3%. You know, give it six months if they're all headed in the right direction for Mr. Trudeau and interest rates start coming down. There may be a different mood in this country. Now, is that enough to make up for the huge difference between the support for Mr. Trudeau and Mr. Mr. Polly? Perhaps not. But I think the mood of this country, one assumes, will be a little bit better. Because a lot of people are hurting right now when it comes to affordability. Things may change in six months to nine months, well, right? Yeah. I mean, if the interest rates go down, inflation goes down, cost of living becomes a little more palatable for people. Having said that, I still think housing is going to be out of reach of people. Rents are not going to go down big time between now and the next election. But perhaps some of that frustration and anger that may be spilling over against the government may dissipate a bit. And again, if you couple that with with uh, an, you know, an aggressive campaign against Poliev's vulnerabilities, that might be enough to change uh, the channel. But I think that's also a bit of wishful thinking for the Liberals. I mean, that's the best-case scenario for them, mm-hmm. uh, is that everything has to break their way between now and 2025. And that's a lot of breaking a <laughs> lot of different ways. And uh, it's, it's a tough hole to get out of. All right, well, let's focus on the longest-running soap opera in B.C., the days of our policing lives, of course, the Surrey policing situation. Our, my guest is uh, Keith Baldrigal, B.C.'s Legislative Bureau Chief. Keith, uh, the Police Act legislation was introduced a couple of days ago uh, by Mark Mike Farnworth, our Solicitor General. He's going to join us at uh, 5 o'clock, talk a little bit about his thinking, but, uh, you know, you're a long-time observer in all of this. Uh, where are we going from here in regards to Surrey? Is this legislation the be-all and end-all, or do you think there's going to be more coming? 
No, I think this is it. Um, this is, you know, all along the Police Act has been the guiding the tool here for Mike Farnworth. And I've had conversations with Farnworth for well more than a year about the sections of the Police Act he was relying upon to take the actions he was doing. And I kept wondering, are you sure this is the language in the Police Act is clear enough? All it did was require the minister to ensure there was adequate levels of policing in municipalities. And um, But there was no roadmap of what to do in case that wasn't the case. But now there's a roadmap, and it was contained in the amendments to the Police Act that were tabled on Monday. Uh, there is a number of amendments that affect other municipalities if they want to do something like this. But there is a specific section, Section 7, which specifically is titled Transition City of Surrey. And in there are one, two, three, four, five different specific directions and po- options for a minister to take to ensure what the police situation is going to be like in Surrey. That was not in the Police Act up until now. Now it's a specific reference on almost half a different, uh, half a dozen references of clear language that if it ever gets in front of a, a, a judge or a court, they're going to look at this document that has very clear language specifically about one municipality, unlike the the police act as it exists now now this this bill that was introduced monday just passed second reading moments ago in the house 54 27 was the vote no mm-hmm. drama there it was fait accompli which suggests to me this is moving very rapidly this will become law fairly quickly it'll, re- it'll go through the committee stage third reading i think in a matter of days uh probably less than a week achieve uh, receive roll assent and then even before Surrey gets its judicial review challenge in front of a judge, this will be the law. And that's what's going to be in front of the judge when that he, take, he or she takes a look at the application for judicial review. The old police act, I think, was vague enough. Maybe Surrey had a, a shot at it. But this police act, which is much tougher and clearer language, makes it much harder for Surrey uh, to, uh, to make its argument. Yesterday, David Eby, the premier, sounded more conciliatory than Mike Farnworth has. Farnworth and Brenda Locke engaged in a sort of battle, locking horns for a long time now. Eby said, hey, the decision's been made. Now's the time to sit down. Let's talk about it. We understand your concerns about costs and implementation, which to me is a signal maybe there's a little more to be had for Syria. I don't think there's going to be any more money, but maybe some sort of other resources could be brought to bear to make the path to Surrey Police Services a little less rocky than what Surrey Council thinks it's going to be. No, um, Brenda Locke is on the police board and, you know, the, the, the government could take her off if uh, she is still intransigent and, and, you know, causing trouble. Or Take the entire board off. Yeah. I mean, the next section in this bill, if fall in the Surrey section, is a section specifically about the Surrey Police Board in its entirety, which gives the government the power basically to replace the Surrey Police Board with an administrator. So, so let, let's say... shot they, across the bow there. Yeah, but but the money still has to come from Surrey taxpayers, and does it not need approval from Surrey City Hall, City Council, which is still Brenda Locke and her majority, or will there be this administrator that can just say, here are the changes, we need this amount of money, it's approved, that they don't need a, a Democrat, democratically elected council uh, to, to get in the way and say, no, we turned down the funding request? Well, the money aspect is not going to... The provincial government offered $150 million, which is sort of a precedent to offer municipalities. Is, but I don't think you're going to get a government too far into the weeds of a municipality's tax challenges or or fine print funding uh, requirements. But and what, that's but not what a judge is going to look at either. Yeah, but what I mean is if, if 
the Surrey Police Service says, look, we need $45 million for this year for hiring more recruits and, and, and running the shop. And Surrey, uh, Surrey Council says, no, you're not going to get that money. It stops everything dead on the tracks. Can technically Brenda Locke and her majority do that? And if, if, they, if they can, what is the remedy for the provincial government to say, wait a minute here, you're going too far. You have to approve this. Like, How, how do you compel Brenda Locke and her majority to actually approve funding requests from the Surrey Police Service? Well, I guess we're going to see how that's actually going to work in, in real time. I mean, the Surrey right now on its website has posted a surplus uh, or it sits around an underfunding of police services. So their numbers don't square. Neither does the government's numbers square. Neither side, as I've put out before, will show their work. They keep throwing numbers out. The government throws $150 million out without showing how does that solve Surrey's problems. Surrey counters with a $450 number or one councillor's $760 million number or whatever without showing how do you come up with that number. So, you know, municipalities fund police all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it funds police to the level that Surrey Police Services thinks it needs, might, that might be a different question. But I don't think you're going to see Surrey necessarily stop funding the police. And if that's the situation, the government's always got some extraordinary powers at its disposal. Yeah, Wallace might farm with that question at 5 o'clock when he's... Uh... Yeah. When he's joining us, it's amazing. It's amazing that we've gotten to this point five years into this, and we're still fighting. And it's kind of interesting. Surrey, the size of Surrey, yet you have smaller, much smaller communities like New Westminster, Port Moody, uh, Delta. All of them have municipal police forces, and they're moving along, and they're quite happy with them, to my understanding. Yet here you have a community with six hundred thousand people, and they're still fighting it. Number one. Yeah, the rest of that bill is about other municipalities. It's a signal they they picked up intelligence and conversations with mayors that other municipalities are thinking about moving away from the RCMP to a municipal police force. And the other sections in this bill are to prevent what's happened with Surrey, which is, you know, going at it alone, not telling the government what it's doing or not sharing information with each other, getting to the point of no return, and then reversing itself with a new council. All that's going to be presumably fixed with these other amendments that are not specific to Surrey. Keith, thank you. All right, anytime.